Hello, everyone. And by that, I mean you. Me? Yeah, you. And, Hi, and the people at home. Or the people. You don't have to be at home to listen to this. Go outside of your home and listen to this. But the point is, it's Then Again with Ken and Glenn. I'm Ken. I'm Glenn. And here we are again. And today's topic is the West. Or the American frontier. Or the Old West. Or... The New West. Our rootin' tootin' cowboy <laughs> it's, days. It's all the things. Old-timey times with a lot of dust and Clint Eastwood. So, yeah, the West. Well, let's define our terms first. Well, because, that's exactly what I was going to say. This is did. a term that has to be defined. Right, we because... just playfully said several things, but really the concept of the West is a construct of whatever time you're looking back on it from. Exactly. And, and you know, West, of course, is a direction. Is a direction. Uh, and, and consists, in American history at least, of a series of expansionist policies and activities, starting with the eastern seaboard. You know, to the first people who landed at Plymouth and Jamestown, the West was the eastern border of what's now Tennessee. And and I would say, let's even go back a few generations into Europe. What was west to Europe? Well, the Atlantic Ocean. We've gone as far as we can on this landmass, and there are legends, Irish legends, about you know St. Brendan sailing west to a different land. Right. You know, there are the Norsemen who actually make it to what we call North America today. So even in Europe, even before we get to the United States, for the United States to start having a western expansion, there's always something mysterious or there's this mystique about the continuation of the, of the you know, European, European people's migrations when, when they hit a, a barrier they couldn't cross called the Atlantic Ocean. What's there? What's out in that ocean? What mystical things might we find? So I think that that sort of informs in some sense once we start having a, quote, western frontier here on the North American continent, there's still a bit of that, that magical element of, of what's out there. What can we go and find that's new and different? Exactly. And, you know, one of the great, great philosophers on this matter that most people don't know today is Frederick Jackson Turner, who was writing about the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And, of course, that's the time there were still the West that we think of with gunslingers and cowpokes and all that sort of thing. But it was really closing the West... We'd gone to the Pacific Ocean and had settled or were in the process of settling most of the rest of what was then the United States. And what he posited was that it was this drive, this thirst to move west, to take land, to have the freedom, the, the mystery of it, and the continuous expansion in that direction that had defined the American character from the very beginning. The expansion into the west, the great west, the mystery, the opportunity the individualism that it sponsored. And, and when he was writing, that was about to end. And, and what, he was struggling with, with, what he was struggling with was the idea of once this thing that has defined American character for the last several hundred years is no more, what then happens to the American character? Right. And, and one of the things that, that has happened to the American character is that it has still stayed within our popular consciousness. And the West is... I would argue, the most mythological aspect of our shared past here in this country. Absolutely. And what Glenn's talking about is, is Turner's frontier thesis from 1893, and, and he, he, he talks about focusing on those values of equality and democracy and optimism, as well as individualism, you know, self-reliance, and violence. And Absolutely. the violence is a big part of it, and with this what's going to take its place and how it's become mythologized. There's a writer, David Murdoch, in his uh, American Exceptionalism, when he writes about that, he says, No other nation has taken a time and place from its past and produced a construct of the imagination equal to America's creation of the West. And that is what has come after the actual 
quote, Western frontier has, has ended, now it's become a West of imagination. And we keep reimagining these themes over and over again. Got Ronald Reagan elected, some would say. Some would say, and, and it's not even an American phenomenon anymore. You right, look at right. The, the Japanese, and especially the Germans, are absolutely fascinated with this idea of the American West. Exactly. And the gunslinger and the cattle drives and sodbusters versus right. sheep farmers and all these things. Again, in Germany, just as we have Renaissance festivals here where people <laughs> go and, and they see jousting and, and, and bad interpretations of European history, in Germany, they have Old West festivals. <laughs> exactly. They really do. It's, it's their version. They have cattle drives and right. gunfights, and I would love to see some of this in the original German, of course. <laughs> exactly. And, of course, all of this emphasis on exploration and settling and burgeoning new lands in the mythologizing conveniently forgets the fact that there were several tens of millions of people already living productive, peaceful lives on this continent when the West was discovered. And We just use a lot of air quotes. You can't see those. Yeah, exactly. But. We do. We use a lot of air quotes. <laughs> By futures and air quotes. Um, but the view of the Native Americans or First Peoples or First Nations as the Canadians call them and, and you know, but the, the European or Western Europe view of the people that were already living here also changed to fit the mythology of their view of the frontier in the West over the centuries. And, you know, we're, this podcast originates uh, in, a, in a cozy little studio in northeast Georgia. So uh, we'll use that as a reference point. The first European presence in this area is the Hernando de Soto expedition of the year 1540. And, you know, so this is some, what, 40, 48 years after Columbus accidentally realizes there's a North American continent between Europe and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and Asia. That's not a very long time, 48 years later. It's a generation. It's a generation, yeah. But the Native Americans of the Southeast, you know, they know that these Europeans are now here. You know, there have been some incursions into what we call Florida and that sort of thing. But when they first come through what is now Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and on into Alabama with the Hernando de Soto expedition, the first really large-scale in-force, 600 men. And a military expedition. And it's a military expedition. You know, it's a very interesting dynamic between these people who think they're on a frontier and these people who are actually living in incredibly well-ordered, sophisticated societies. He doesn't, Hernando de Soto doesn't find a wilderness for us to settle. He finds the Mississippian culture, which is sophisticated, has chiefdoms, has trade networks, has customs, has rituals, politics. Has, has conquest has, and enslavement. Has conquest and enslavement, exactly. You know, it's very European. <laughs> <laughs> and yet American. And yet American at the same time. So these first interactions, you know, kind of are key to how things are going to go. For instance, when they're coming through what is now Georgia, the Mississippian cultures they encounter look at these men and go, wow, that's weapons and armor, the likes of which we can't fight. We are small little chiefdoms and, and tribal you know, networks. Tell him what he wants to hear, give him what he wants, keep him moving, get him out of here, which is the best possible strategy they can have. And DeSoto plays into the, the European hubris of, well, of course, they're deferring to us because we are so special and so wonderful. And so that plays out in a lot of tribes until he meets, of course, Tuscaloosa, the 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 great chief, the paramount chief of, of the Mississippians in the Alabama-Georgia region, who does have enough resources to go, you know what, I'm not going to give you what you want. Instead, I'm going to lure you into an ambush, and we're going to try to kill you. And, and very nearly succeeds. I mean, those, those two instances of how they're dealing with each other sets the stage for how Native American and European-American and American relations are going to go. There's appeasement, 
grudging cooperation, and outright warfare. And, and of course, the disease. And well, yes, the <laughs> disease. And you know, that's there's been much talk about the horrific disease that swept through the Native American populations, and it was horrific. It was certainly not anything purposefully done by the Europeans. Right. Uh, it, it DeSoto just, had no idea he was spreading well, disease. DeSoto caught disease and pooped <laughs> himself to death and died when thrown in the Mississippi River because his body was decomposing. Exactly. Uh, the, the Europeans were susceptible to disease, but one of the advantages that the Europeans had, and they didn't really, they certainly didn't plan for this, I think it took them a while to figure it out, is that comparatively, they had an incredible resistance to pathogens, to disease, and that is one of the things that allowed the European settlements to eventually supersede those of the Native Americans because it was, at its most fundamental level, it's a numbers game. Of yeah. course the Native Americans had more people when the Europeans first got here. It was the same with DeSoto, it was the same with, this, with the settlers in French Canada, mm -hmm. Spanish Florida, the central part of the of, uh, North American continent, and the Europeans at first were overwhelmingly outnumbered, but because they were, they were very uh, fruitful and multiplied, <laughs> and because the uh, populations, because DeSoto had come through, mm -hmm. of the Native Americans had been very nearly wiped out. The numbers game simply and inevitably flowed in the favor of the American settlers. And when you have a lot of numbers, you also have to have a place to put them, let them raise their crops, let them feed themselves. Right. And that's really, again, it's the, the fundamental level, it's about numbers and it's about land. Because in Europe, there was a gross right. shortage of land and an excess of labor in the Americas, it was the exact opposite. There was a vast, seemingly at the moment, infinitely right. available amount of land and very little labor. And what you say about, about you know land and farming also speaks to animals, which is one reason why the Europeans had resistance to pathogens. They had domesticated animals that the Native Americans hadn't. It's the cows and the sheep and the hogs. And the horses and the mules. And, and the horses and the mules. Yes. You know, the Europeans had gotten you know, immune to the poxes that those animals carried. The Native Americans hadn't. Once the Native Americans are decimated by disease, it's easier to coerce them into doing other things. But then these animals are also the key, in the American mind, to the westward expansion. You need the land for the farms, but also the wide ranges for your cattle to graze, and your sheep to graze, and your horse to ride. Wild horses had come up from the Spanish settlements in Central and South yep. America. They'd found their way into the plains. The Native Americans very quickly adapted and adopted and became incredible, astoundingly uh, good horsemen. Astoundingly good horsemen, and a lot of their culture began to be built around horses. We think of a lot of Native Americans being their, their culture and society being altered by technology, but it's also, as you say, Ken, yeah. it's, it's domesticated animals, and especially the horse. Mm -hmm. Again, in the plains, as you've noticed, we're starting to edge further west as we're talking about the west. <laughs> we are. When most people think of, you don't think of Northeast Georgia as the west, you but think it was. It, it was for a time. And as that frontier moves, the West becomes redefined geographically. The, West, the idea of the West has some details that change about it depending upon what people are looking for, the right. different peoples coming in, what the Native American tribes are that, that they're interacting with and running into and, and having violent interactions with. But the idea of the West remains constant. What the West is defined as geographically Right. Changes over time. And, and you know, the, the nascent United States, you know, they've won their war for independence. And in the, you know, 1780s, 1790s, the West ends at the Mississippi River. That's the Western boundary. The United States has no claims on this continent past the Mississippi River. So No legal claims. No legal claims. But, but also wasn't really seeking any because, you know, you had Spain right. and France and Great Britain pretty much had the lands west on the north-south axis. Right. So, you know, there was not necessarily any reason to suppose 
even though people might have already started entertaining the idea, but there was no real reason to suppose that the United States was going to expand past the Mississippi River until Napoleon Bonaparte needed money. <laughs> and Jefferson wanted New Orleans. <laughs> That's Thomas Jefferson, by the way. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so Napoleon Bonaparte, who, who has the, you know, the French claims to Louisiana, which is not just the present-day state of Louisiana people. It's, it's a huge... Stretches from New Orleans to somewhere upwards in what is now Canada. <laughs> exactly. Possibly to what yeah. is now Washington State. It's yeah. a little vague. He, uh, you know, he, he, he opens negotiations with, with Jefferson. Jefferson thinks he's just going to be able to negotiate and get New Orleans. And Napoleon says, actually, how would you like all of it? Now, this was the claim to the lands he was selling. Let's be very clear about that. He wasn't selling the land. He was selling the claim to the land. That was supposed to be Spanish, <laughs> but he had conquered Spain. But he conquered so. Spain. And the fact that you're selling the claim to a land is sort of a tacit admission that, well, we know people already live there. But we we know how to deal with them. Yes, yes. <laughs> We've already demonstrated that. Jefferson doesn't want to do it on one hand because it's not constitutional. Do I have the power as the executive of the American government to do this? And his best friend, James Madison, <laughs> and I'm going to paraphrase here, says, are you nuts? <laughs> we, we have the opportunity to literally... Are you sure that's a paraphrase? Isn't it, that what it, he actually... It, it, it's, records it's are spotty at the best. <laughs> uh, and, and he's like, we have the opportunity to literally double the size of our nation without spilling a single drop of blood, having to declare war against anyone. It is a fantastic opportunity. Of course, you want to do this. And again, I could go on and on because the way it was funded is absolutely fascinating. I would suggest you Google it. I'm not going to bore you with it. but Give the highlights because it is pretty cool. <laughs> the highlights are that they paid $15 million for the Louisiana Territory. Two and a half million of that was money that was already owed by Americans to the French government that the American government made itself good for. Then the Americans had to go through a, an, an English bank to finance the rest. England is at war with France, <laughs> but the English private bank doesn't matter. It secures funds and pays the French, who it's at war with, <laughs> so that the money can go to Napoleon. And then the Americans basically owe this particular financing house in England the money, and they do it. It's all perfectly legal and financial, if not incredibly discombobulating, but they do eventually pay it all off about the end of the Napoleonic Wars, so everyone's happy. Britain, the government of Britain at first says this is totally erroneous, this claim is bogus, and then they realize that the banking firm, which is also important in Great Britain, <laughs> is incredibly important to Great Britain, and they need to keep it funded, so they decide not to push it too much. It's... Politics and money, people. It's, it's, it goes all the way back. But, <clears throat> but once the, the territory is is acquired on paper, of course, Lewis and Clark go out. That's an entire another, another story, right. and they're really the first American explorers that not just go to the West. They create an, a, well, it's a core discovery. They, they're supposed to record things. They're supposed to create uh, relationships and, and initial interactions with the Native American tribes they run into. They discover the course of the Northwest Passage. There isn't one. Which they discovered. Which they discovered. Ah, there's, there's not one. one. There's not one. Don't, don't keep looking for it. <laughs> Go to the Pacific, come back, and so the United States size is double. That, that gets us to the Pacific Ocean, more or less, but it doesn't get us everything from the Mississippi. There's this pesky matter of Spanish and then later Mexican territory that really goes from the north part of South America all the way up to what's now around Oregon mm -hmm. and Oklahoma and Nebraska and those areas. And we're going to skip ahead a bit. This is obviously very big. And then the United States decides to have a war to get the rest of that under <laughs> James Polk. 
and he under very dubious circumstances. Very dubious circumstances. As Lincoln said, "Show me the spot where American blood was spilled on." <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, that's irrelevant. Yeah, that's it's just right. irrelevant, Ken. And, you know, and uh, and so one of Polk's platforms to be elected president is, "If you elect me president, I will go to war with Mexico and get all that territory." He's elected overwhelmingly. They go to war. You know what? Let's do a little a quick sidebar here, though. Because while there is, of course, this tremendous surge and urge and energy to keep moving west, keep moving west, it's worth mentioning that west wasn't the only direction that there were advocates to drive in. The War of 1812, one of the agendas was let's seize Canada. Well, yes. And well, I'm just this is just no. for context. And yes. then there, and then there's also you know contemporaneous with these moves to to get those lands west from Mexico, there are there are many people saying let's also get Cuba, and there are. A lot of attempts to get well, Cuba. So, but it's just it's just interesting that the ones that fall to the side, the efforts that fall to the side are the Canadian or the Cuban. But the one focus that always stays and the one that is achieved is, is the West. Is the West? Yeah, our uh, American expansion looks in 360 degrees of direction uh, at this time. But it, as you say, it, it tends to turn out that it's the it's it's that westward look. And uh, once we're, we're skipping all the Texas stuff, too. Of course, the Texas Revolution, Texas declares its independence. Later on, it, it wants to join the United States. The Mexican War really, really starts over right. that issue. Right. The Americans defeat Mexico in two years and take, in effect, literally what was half of Mexican territory in 1848. Yeah. Manifest destiny, the idea that America is destined to have the continent from, from Pacific to Atlantic, is secured, but now it is time to settle that, and right. then a pesky civil war gets in the way. <laughs> right, and and you know there's this huge migration before the civil war. The, you know the, and this is where we're about to get into this. You know the popular imagination concept of the West, the wagon trains, the gunfights, the saloons. That all tends to be conflated into one thing, but really that first surge of expansion really was just about wagon trains heading out. Stopping at supply stations like your Fort Laramie right. and, and, and continuing. It was. It was in the 1840s and 50s. Well, 18, late 40s and, 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 and 50s. And, yeah. th and that's when you've got the tons of the literal tons of these wagons <laughs> and peoples, you know, moving out to start these farms. And and that's what it overwhelmingly is. As we said earlier, it's farms. It's about. It's it's land. It, it, it's, it's land. It's that a version of that still not yet dead Jeffersonian yeoman farmer yeah. ideal is still playing out. And of course. It's the towns that grow up are towns that are serving those people that are moving through. And it's ironically that those towns will become the hubs right. for, for communication and all that. But it's right there as we're getting towards the, uh, the Civil War, there's, there's that push to, we need a railroad. We need mm -hmm. a transcontinental railroad. We now have the whole continent. We now need the most modern way to traverse this continent. And there are some like the guy sitting in this chair talking right now, who might say that the Transcontinental Railroad was at least an ancillary uh, contributor to the American Civil War because our good friend Stephen Douglas had to grease a few political wheels to get a certain route for that projected railroad that, that, that angered some people that were in slaveholding states that then made them withhold their votes for him in a certain convention to nominate him for president <laughs> that led to the split in a party I mean, well, the e even the westward, even if you take away the slavery issue, which is huge, huge. for western expansion, <laughs> even if you take that away, it, something like choosing the route for the railroad, 
also becomes this issue that permeates everything and has you know unintended consequences in a civil war. It's yeah, it's huge. And and where that railroad is going to go is it going to go in a northerly or southerly route? Right. Is not decided before the civil war. Right. The South secedes. And it becomes incredibly convenient because guess what happens about six months after the Civil War starts and the South, the Southern votes aren't in Congress. I propose the railroad, Transcontinental Railroad go to a Northern route. Clout hit. Here's a here's a plan to settle the West based on no slaves and an equal division of land. Click passed. And then the South, when they come back in, has to accept all of these new amendments, all right. of these laws, and things like that. the The real work of westward expansion gets done. During the civil, not not the legislative work. Right, the legislative, the legislative work. work is right. done when the South isn't there to and, interfere. And the infrastructure work, because it's during this, you know, the, the Transcontinental Railroad starts being built during the Civil War. Right. And, you know, and it's, and now once the war is over and you have a, here's an air quote, reunited country, <laughs> and people are ready to begin that westward expansion again. You've had the Homestead Act of 1862 passed, you've got the railroad built, you've got you know, all the encouragement for the, the way the land's going to be divided. And now it's primed for that next surge that, ironically, is going to be a fairly short surge. We're now it's about in, 20 years. Yeah, because yeah. we're now in, entering the period that's that most people think, ah, this is the Old West. It's really about 1875 to about 1895. It's about 20 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that you have, you know, Miss Kitty and... Marshall Dillon and you know all that nonsense going on. Nonsense. It's, no, it's not nonsense. It's it's entertaining mythology. It is entertaining <laughs> and mythology. It is. And, and of course, <laughs> you know, and, and that's something that that really does bear mentioning is because now, because the West, the Old West, has been such a powerful trope, such a powerful theme. That's being reiterated over and over and over in songs and movies and plays and cartoons and just everything. It has become so steeped in the American imagination that it is now very difficult to separate the exaggeration from the fact. Very you know difficult. that wonderful line in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? You yep. know, when the when the when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that was very much a conscious process, even in the waning days of the West. Yeah, let's. We know we're mythologizing. We know that's what we're doing. So that's what we're going to do. That's when it was a, they, the mythology of the West planted its roots when the, the, the West was still around. Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. Absolutely. And those dime novels. Right. They, that, they knew the, what they were doing. The people out East were eating this stuff right. up. And that's when it started. And, and then when, you know, what is, what is the first motion picture movie that's distributed widely in the United States. Great, great train, train robbery. robbery. And it's about bad guys yep. robbing a train. Yep. Trains, cow, it's, the myth is all there. Yeah. It's the first movie in America. Trains, robbers, but also horses, stunts, you know, but also, you know, in, in a sense, you know, the train is the technology, the horse is the animal, the brute, the brute forces, the technological forces. Who wins? Well, it's the, the robbers on horses beat the train. They beat the system. They right. beat order. And that just plays into this whole, hey, we're independent, rough-hewn, Thieves? Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, we are. Well, yeah. But we're individuals. <laughs> we're individuals. That's how we do it. Uh, but yeah, and the, you know, that's the thing. Full disclosure, I adore the mythology of the West. I've studied enough to more or less know the difference. But I'll, you know, growing up watching The Lone Ranger and Marshall Dillon and all these guys in the movies with my dad, that, that, he loved that genre growing up because starting about 
right after, well, not even after World War II, in the 1920s, when radio comes out, cowboy radio shows are incredibly popular, and then they're at the movies, and then when television happens, they are by far the most popular genre mm -hmm. on, on television. I think at one point in the 60s, half the shows on primetime yeah. television were westerns. Yeah. It's, it's hugely popular, and it had its wane, but even today, there are, every once in a while, there's still... Oh, a there's movie a lot that, that comes, comes out. Yeah. Uh, single action shooters who like to dress up in LARP as cowboys. <laughs> um, well, you know, and, and I'm going to go ahead and mention a, a, a Western that, that I think nails historically accurately and the mythology in the same, and that's Deadwood. It was on HBO a few years back. Just absolutely perfectly captures the ambiance, the attitudes, the version of True Grit that the Coen brothers did. Yes. Once again, it, it, it's. It's ugly. It's absolutely it's ugly. Ugly British world. But but it's also a world that's vibrant and moving in a direction that it that it thinks is the best direction to go right. in, for the dominant society. Cannot recommend those too highly enough. And uh, let me also plug, if we're talking about <laughs> myths of the West that bear much closer resemblance to reality, the Little House on the Prairie. Oh right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because those are you know that's not gunslingers and 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 right. That's fish, but that, that's that a farming is, family in the, West, in the West trying to survive. That Little House books, I would argue, are probably <laughs> better representations of the West than probably every anything put on on film. Right. Uh, because they're the story of a family, and it's from the perspective of a little girl. And all Which the is, you know, a perspective happen. you don't normally see, and it's great. I adored that. I don't know how many times I have read those books in my life, including within the last two years. <laughs> but they're so good. They're so good. Yeah. The books. Now, the television show's okay. <laughs> it's okay. If you like a lot of 70s hi-hat in the opening theme, it, it's fine. Oh, some the, 70s hi-hat. But, but the books are so fantastic. Yeah. Now, something that I think we should also address, uh, since, you know, we've, we've mentioned the Native Americans many times, is that the treatment of the Native American in this mythological storytelling, this, this mythologizing of the West, they've tended to be the noble savage who is our friend or the heartless enemy, and that's about it. They're not very human. They're not human. They, they, they are not presented in these, in these real-life, real-person <laughs> terms. That's a disservice because they weren't necessarily all the... The, the, the 70s commercials would have you right, believe, right. you know, the, the Native Americans warred viciously against each other, took other people, other tribes' lands when they could. They married, they had families. They, and they married they, and they had families and farmed. They you know, loved, they, they in other lost, words, they cried, they died. They, they were the full panoply of the human condition, just like the European Americans and Americans that were pushing them out of their homes. Humans are, are capable of tremendous compassion and cruelty in equal measure, and all sides were. You know, you can certainly make the argument that <laughs> that the Native Americans were the party that were under siege. And, oh yeah. And I will make that case. But to paint anybody as just one dimensional or, or even two dimensional is, is wrong. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And they're probably in, in the popular mythology. It wasn't until Dances with Wolves that a movie came out that legitimately tried to humanize not only the Native Americans, but the ah, interactions. I would say Little Big Man did some of that. But Little Big Man was also, it had a different agenda it had a different to be a agenda. protest movie about the Vietnam War. Right. <laughs> In the but, guise of a Western. 
But yes. But yes, they they you know and and they went a long way and this will sound shocking, but in making sure they cast Native Americans in Native American roles, <laughs> right? Uh, they brought Native Americans in on the script writing process and the production process and and things like that. So it was uh and and you know more efforts have been made since then, but again, it's a good movie. It is. It's a good movie. Get the longer version; they're always better. <laughs> Uh, but you know, and and the West even still still rings with us now, even in genres that don't necessarily don't necessarily meet. You don't think of that well, as being Star Wars was first described as a you know as a Western yeah. in space and Firefly, of course. Firefly, Firefly is a Western in space, space. and the, they all say so. Yeah, they've got yeah. six guns. Yeah. And and chaps on their right. spaceships. I mean, so, and they, and they I, even haul cattle in one of them. And what yes, and what and what that speaks to is that there's always this yearning, and it's just it's the human spirit, it's the human conditions. You know, since our proto-human ancestors first traipsed out of Africa to spread around the globe, we we're, we're looking for something, we're, we're seeking something. We've got to we've got to move, and this this impulsion to go to to the to the limit, you know, to go into space is just. A continuation of the Western Absolutely. expansion dream, and 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 I, I first star on the left, straight on till morning, said the Englishman. <laughs> it is a myth within the American soul and the culture, but it is so that strong. Somehow, still speaks. It still speaks, and it still stands, and it is so strong. We will never make it go away, and I would say we shouldn't. Maybe not. And on that happy note, I think we've talked enough for this episode. Uh, and Alibba went, yes, you have. She gave us the big eyes. So thanks for listening once again. And, and next month, our topic will be something else. It's going to be on. Oh, no. Our signal broke up. Transmission ended. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Control Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center.